This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Are the Tories finished? We clearly need to deliver Brexit. That's very important. Uh, and I hope that we can do that as soon as possible. Because if we become only a Brexit party, then we truly are finished. Brexit has already gone on long enough. If you now try to hold us in against our will, you will be facing perfidious Albion on speed. I was reminded of the great words of Tennyson in his famous poem Ulysses, which could almost have been written <clears throat> for our current situation in this country. Come, my friends. It is not too late to seek a newer world. Welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast from The Times. That first was Matt Hancock, then Marc Francois. I'm Matt Chorley on day three of a special series of the state of British politics at this extraordinary time. Theresa May is going, but nobody knows when. Someone will replace her, but nobody knows who or what they'll stand for, or even if there'll be much of a party left to inherit. Today I've been to the launch of a devastating report by the onward think tank to the crisis facing the Conservatives as young people seem to turn their back on the party which has been in government for almost a decade. In a packed room, the report launch became a leadership hustings as Matt Hancock, Penny Morden and Tom Tugendhat set out their stalls. I spoke to all of them, and you'll hear from them later in this episode. At the same time as that event, just across Parliament Square, the Bruges Group was meeting, where hard Brexiteers Andrew Bridgen, Anne-Marie Morris and Marc Francois, as you heard, at the top of the show quoting Tennyson, they struck a very different tone. For the future direction of the party. But is it rescuable? Will the change of leader be enough to reverse a trend, which means that for now at least the party seems to be toxic for a whole generation? Or are the Tories finished? So I'm joined by James Canagasorium, a pollster strategist who worked on the Scottish Conservative election campaign. Uh, James, you're going to play the role of Tony Blackburn in counting down the top 10 ways that the Tories are in trouble. So what's number 10? Number 10 would be generally the mood music in terms of the rise of social liberalism. On a number of issues, I think, related to moral and social issues, such as assisted dying and, uh, for example, equal marriage, Conservative MPs have often, a small minority of them, been against the general tide of public opinion. And in time, we've seen uh, the majority of public opinion weigh in on those issues towards a more liberal position. So we're talking about gay marriage family matters, women who work, abortion, race, all of that stuff. All of that stuff. And I think it's really 
important because it is, as I would describe, the, the mood music. Number nine. The expansion of higher education. One of the key markers in how young people vote, whether they're perhaps centre-right or centre-left, is whether they've gone to university. The impact it has on finances and the general process of becoming a graduate has meant that effectively young people are cleaved into two groups, those who haven't gone to university and those who have. And as the group of people who have gone to university has increased, so has effectively the uh, young people's position for the Labour Party. People who go to university are more likely to vote for Labour, and if more and more people are going to university, that that becomes a, a big problem for the Tory party. Yeah, that's exactly right. Number eight. So I'd say number eight there is, is, is perhaps a bit of a complex one. I, w- I would say it's around the changing average age of particular areas. So if we think back around 30 years, uh, 30 years ago, cities have always been more full of younger people and the countryside full of older people. But a lot of these patterns have become, uh, as it were, more extreme over time. There's been a lot of what I would call differential internal migration. Um, that's a very fancy way of pointing out that kids go to university, uh, they leave their hometowns, often in the countryside or in small towns or the rural areas, and they never come back. And that's created a massive uh, difference in terms of the average age of areas. Now, that matters because living in a city permanently changes your views on politics and shifts it to the left. Does that mean, though, that the Tories can still count on a strong base in rural areas? Yes, that would, that would definitely be the case. And uh, rural areas have got more conservative over the last 10 to 15 years. The reason why that's the case is that a lot of poorer voters in rural areas have now joined their richer neighbours in voting conservative. OK, number seven. Ethnic minority voters are systemically less likely to vote conservative than their kind of white counterparts. So in the last election, 45% of white voters voted conservative uh, and around 39% voted Labour. But seven, I think above 70% of ethnic minority voters voted Labour. So there's a big difference. And as ethnic minorities are become a larger share of the population, this effectively creates a leverage effect for the Labour votes. I think it's interesting that this is very much linked to the social liberalism point that I made. It's not that people necessarily always vote a certain way it's just that the party has been seen hostile and to the interests and views and lives of a lot of ethnic minorities over a protracted period of time and and, and that's what we're seeing as political consequences of that. So looking at the the research in the Onward report amongst people in their 60s only 5% uh, BME but amongst people in their 20s it's 20% and those people in their 20s are going to become the future people of the 60s and you know the figures keep rising then yeah, exactly. you know if, if the Tories are mostly drawing their support from white voters and there are fewer of them that's a problem yeah I mean young Britain and old Britain looks very very different number six number six I think it's the kind of rise of social media um, it's not necessarily the case that this always benefits a kind of centre-left cause I think the experience of Trump in America and actually the Brexit campaign where the Leave campaign utilised social media very effectively doesn't necessarily mean that this disadvantages the Conservative Party. As of today, in terms of technological capabilities, uh, the Labour Party, Momentum, the centre-left and far-left ecosystem are equipped much better and much more powerfully with, with, with the right tools, technology, people and talent. And sometimes when we've seen Tories dipping their toes into social media can look a bit weird i mean most recently theresa may on her sofa at the weekend it looked actually lots of people said oh it's amazing you know she looks you know normal and natural and like a human being and actually the problem is that that's so far from the impression that people have had again this is a function of age the labor party have plenty of people that just 
make these kind of things for fun. It's taken a lot of time for the Conservatives to get these capabilities and they're playing catch-up. Number five. Generally, it's because they've been in government for a long time. Um, you know, it's now been nine years that the government has been in power. I think young people often look for change. That is a general kind of theme that runs through their minds in terms of the palette of choices that's presented in front of them and what they eventually choose. And in 2010, that was, of course, the vote for change was, was to vote Conservative. I'm 30 and I'm part of the generation that had an entire school years under a Labour government. And actually the fresh new option was to vote Conservative. And a lot of people did vote Conservative at 2010. That's a much harder argument to make now. You have a record you have to stand on. Uh, there's a selection bias for negative things that are stickier in the mind than good policy that works in unseen ways. And I think, again, that's, that's, that's a huge amount that's playing into that. You know, it's always very difficult for a party to reboot in government. You know, Gordon Brown found this in, uh, in 2010. Is it possible to become the change candidate from within government? I think with the identities and personnel of government changing so rapidly, it is actually possible. When people think of the Conservative Party now, they don't necessarily just think of one thing. There's a lot of diversity. Like, It's very hard to criticise the Conservative Party for being disunited and at the same time having one single brand. Both can't be true at the same time. And so there is the opportunity, I think, to reinvent and to kind of change in government. It's going to be quite tough, I think, for the party. But given if there is a change of leadership and a change, not, not just in terms of the top job, but in the seams and reams of people below them, that could definitely be the case. OK, number four. Tuition fees, but it, perhaps in a slightly unexpected way. Um, the reason I think tuition fees are, are a big thing and the reason they've damaged the Conservatives is because I think they were the turnkey that, un, that unlocked the Liberal Democrat coalition. 25% party, one you know, quarter of the electorate suddenly disappeared and many of those people were younger voters and they migrated to a lot of parties in between 2010 and 17 but their eventual home, many of them, was with Jeremy Corbyn and I think without tuition fees and without that, that kind of collapse of the Liberal Democrat movement it's impossible to see how Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party would have polled 40%. OK, we're entering the top three now so what's the third biggest challenge to the Tory party? I think the third biggest challenge is the financial crash and the the way that's changed politics if we think about a lot of conservatives conservative mps conservative activists and also conservative voters uh, the reason many of them are conservatives because they came of age as it were during the end of the cold war that's their memory and you know not to get all francis fukuyama about it but there was a sense of the bad guys and, and the good guys. And there was a sense that liberal democracy and capitalism had won out. Private enterprise, openness, prosperity driven by market forces would eventually make societies happier and wealthier and more prosperous. That's not the background to people who are 30 or under have no living memory of a functioning economy with kind of sharp real wage growth and a good supply of jobs. And I think what we're seeing, the consequence of that is that systemically people are less pro uh, free markets and pro open markets and uh, will, their views tend towards taxing higher and having a larger state number two number two i think is 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 what you've kind of that's what's been driving everyone mad for the past couple of years probably and probably you more so than many <laughs> brexit brexit is not popular amongst young people um i probably don't get any prizes for pointing that out but a lot of that is explained by the difference in education levels amongst young and old people. So largely young people don't support Brexit and older people do because that is largely a function of the education levels of those groups of people. But when you look at the kind of polling on no deal, 
uh, and the prospect of no deal is, is quite real now, it is exceptionally unpopular amongst young people. 6% of 18 to 24 year olds think that it would be a good outcome and 18% of 25 to 49. It's very hard on that environment for young people to uh, credibly support the Conservative Party in any large numbers. Okay, so finally then, in our Bruno Book style countdown, what's the number one threat do you think to the Tory party? Falling home ownership. It is more of a thing in cities and urban areas. That's where most young people live. But this is the thing that is really driving down the Conservative votes amongst young people. When you kind of statistically analyse it in a dark room somewhere, one of the things that really jumps out at you is that one of the biggest markers of voting Tory is, is being a homeowner. And home ownership has collapsed, you know. Amongst 65-year-olds, between 70 to 80% of people are homeowners, depending on your ethnicity. Amongst people who are 35 to 44, you know, these are people who've been in their careers, some of them for 20 years. Home ownership stands between 40 to 60%, depending on your ethnicity. But decline has led to a, 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 a large fall in Conservative support because ultimately it is the party that believes that everyone should have capital and everyone should have assets and if they don't have that then one of the key drivers behind supporting the proposition goes away. Okay so let's not end it entirely on a downer. Just very quickly give me a couple of reasons why all is not lost. All isn't lost. I mean this is a Conservative party going through a lot of problems that is not united and has been in government for 10 years and it's not behind in the polls. A lot of that has to go down to Jeremy Corbyn. What we have almost is a kind of perfect political science of experiments where the government's record has is, is been bad. It's been pretty patchy uh, in terms of execution of its plans, in terms of its brand. There's a lot of problems. But effectively, things have held steady because Jeremy Corbyn has some of the worst opposition leader ratings ever in political history. I think without him, we simply wouldn't be in this position of a deadlock. If you ask people and you poll them, who do you think would make the best prime minister and don't know comes out top uh, in this environment? That's highly unusual. Uh, these are kind of numbers we haven't really seen before. A lot of young people agree with the policies and political positioning of the Conservative Party, whether that's on the idea of home ownership, whether that's on the idea of regulation of tech companies, whether that's in the kind of policy area of low taxes. One of the key reasons is that they don't vote Conservative is is that many of them don't like the brand. Brands can be changed, but people's political views and philosophies are, are harder to change. And the third thing I would say is, is talent. It seems like a funny point to make, but there are a lot of people in the younger generations who are really quite good, who could definitely turn the ship around. Ruth Davidson, like Matthew Hancock, Sajid Javid. These are people who, in the bubble, in SW1, we may think, oh, you know, I don't see it. But actually out in the country, they may have a lot, uh, a lot of wider appeal. Well, that seems like a good opportunity to introduce some of that talent, some of those potential candidates for the next Tory leadership. I caught up with Penny Morden, Tom Tugendhat, and I start with Matt Hancock. Is the Tory party finished? No. The report shows there's a huge opportunity for a party that can present the centre ground of uh, British politics in a compelling way talks about the future, uh, is optimistic for people's futures, delivers the improved living standards uh, and can be open and optimistic and outward looking. And, and uh, we've got to get on from Brexit and start talking about the, the, all the other issues that uh, matter to people and what the report shows the scale of the challenge certainly but it also shows that this can be done because a lot of it actually goes beyond Brexit doesn't it demographical change where people live the jobs that they do 
it's not just that young people don't like Brexit. It goes sort of far beyond that. Yes, of course. Um, it, it, of course, there's far more to life than Brexit. The, the future that we need to build is bigger than Brexit. Bre- you know, our, our relationship with our European um, colleagues is, is one part of the future Britain that we need to build. You know, the impact of technology looms large over this report because it's, it's changed the way that we interact. It's changed ec- people's expectations. Um, and it's also left this yearning for a sense of belonging, which I think we need to uh, build. And these changes are, are, are bigger than Brexit in many ways. And the opportunity to get on and talk about them once we've uh, delivered on Brexit is something I hugely look forward to. And how much damage has been done during this debate? When, when a young person turns on the TV or watches a clip on Twitter and you've got your Tory colleagues talking about the Second World War and not surrendering to the Germans and turning the clock back and people in double-breasted suits quoting Latin in the House of God. It feels like a party being taken over by people who want to turn the clock back, not look, look to the future. Well, we do need to turn the clock forward and talk about all of the things that are to come. While you've been here just across the road, there's been a Bruges group event where they've got a picture of Margaret Thatcher hanging on the lectern and they're talking about turning the clock back. Well, the Margaret Thatcher herself turned the clock forward. She talked about the power of technology. She was the first major politician to talk about climate change. Uh, she s- delivered for people in their, in their pocket with increasing living standards. These sorts of things are what this uh, report shows uh, that people want. And so, yes, of course, we've got to settle Brexit. And I hope that we can deliver that as soon as possible so we can get on to talk about all these other things that people care so much about. So last question, because you'd like to answer a question, a straight question. Are you going to run for leader? I hope that the ideas that we've been talking about today are, are a are a vital part of the leadership contest. Oh, I've never had a queue of people before. Tom Tugendhat, Chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Is the Tory party finished? Certainly not, no. Um, what this demonstrates is that actually the values that uh, people associated centre-right uh, are actually shared very widely. And, but then isn't that the problem? People agree with you, they just don't want to vote for you. It's certainly true that at the moment uh, we've got uh, to align our, our, the way we look with the way we speak and, and at the moment we're not, not as good at that as we should be. Uh, but it's quite clear that the ideas we champion and the values we stand for are absolutely in line with people's aspirations. You know, we're seeing a generation today that is much more dynamic and self-starting than any other. I mean, you're holding down, what is it, four jobs, five jobs now, Matt? Uh, what, with podcasting and writing morning blogs and, and, and copying the paper and all the rest of it? And you're not unusual. I mean, the number of young people now who are starting their own business, working on something, doing something else on the side, is enormous. And that's because we're dealing with a startup generation, a, a generation that has really uh, rewritten the rules of the, uh, of the economy and indeed is rewriting the rules of politics. And I think we just need to, we need to make sure that we, we keep up with that. And yet in the Tory party at the moment, it's the Jacob Rees-Mogg double-breasted Toryism which seems to be on the march. Well, look, volume is always, uh, is always one of those things that you can't always control who has the mic. Uh, well, you can, but others can't. <laughs> but the, um, is, that, is that a problem, do you think? Of course it's an issue if people see, um, see a group like the Conservatives as one thing, and actually, like all parties, all parties are a, a coalition. And the same, is true of, you know, the same is true of any party, but it's quite clear that young people today don't want the sedatist rubbish that's coming from uh, some people, and they don't want uh, the level of intervention and control that comes from uh, from some people. They don't want you know they don't want the petty anti-Semitism and they don't want the nasty sort of straight back to the 1970s. You know, uh, nor indeed do they want the uh, straight back to the 1870s. But you know, <laughs> but what people want is you know what, what we all want, which is a, a country that's comfortable with itself, that's at ease with itself, and that uh, is giving opportunity for individuals to you know explore who they are and what they want to do. Will you run for leader? No. Perfect. Well, there we are.
Penny Morden, International Development Secretary. Same question I've been asking everyone else. Is the Tory party finished? No. I mean, it sounds I, like, this report does, it does sound pretty grim. No. What this shows is actually the things that we stand for are alive and kicking out there. And I think that this is a wake-up call. I, I don't think this is about what we should be putting on our leaflets or what we should be putting in manifestos. It's about changing the way our politics works. The frustration that people feel is not just what they see when they look at the Commons Chamber and how people behave and, and, and that. It's about the fact that they have the answers to the problems that our country's facing and they want to help. That's when people get really wound up and frustrated is that they want to lean in on particular issues, but they don't have the opportunities or we're not uh, framing those big questions in a way that they can identify how they can help. It is part of the problem, isn't it? If people agree with what you consider to be your values, there is a brand problem. It is more than that. It's about enabling people to achieve things. I mean, only optimists vote. People go to the polling station because they want to make the world a better place. And the frustration that they feel is that they can't do that. Um, you know, not a week goes by when I don't find someone that's got a fantastic idea and is running a small business, helping with social care or so forth, but can't get the opportunities to expand and bring those opportunities to other people because the local authority won't take a risk on them. It's fine to signpost people to Gumtree to find a carer, but it won't allow that individual to expand an amazing service. Similarly, we can't regulate at a speed which enables the fantastic things that our science base is inventing to be developed here and turn into products and create wealth for our nation. So there are many, many examples of where we're just completely adrift from the ambitions, the ideas, and all of the opportunities that are out there in the real world. That's what we need to connect with. And it's not about our brand or our party colour or anything like that. It is about actually what we are delivering for people. That's what matters. And given that the Prime Minister said she's got to stand down at some point, do you feel like the party is at a crossroads? People kept using the phrase sort of existential threat. I personally think that where you've had really dramatic change in the nation for the better, it has been around us focusing on what the nation needs, what's the national mission, what is it we're trying to get done, whether it's um, services for disabled people and support, whether it's tackling climate change, what are the things that we need to be focused on as a nation and how do we get other people to lean in and help? And I think what, what causes people to really feel that they want to contribute, as well as wanting to make use of their talents and ideas, is the fact that they have great faith and trust and pride in our nation. I mean, you know, when you look at leaders like Thatcher or Reagan over the other side of the pond, it wasn't that they stamped themselves on the nation. It was that their nation and what it stood for made such an impression on them. They were able to reflect that back. And just finally, because I've asked everyone else, were you one for leader? Oh, stop it. The there is, go there is going to be, a, going she's on. made clear, there is going to, she is going to go. We're in the middle of a national okay. crisis. Tom just said there no. Is... When I asked Tom Tugendhat, he just said no. Well, good for him. But <laughs> I'm focused... That'll be a story. I'm focused on um, what actually needs to be done. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. So that's what the politicians say, but how bad are things for the Tories, really? I'm joined by Henry Zeffman, political correspondent from The Times, and Katie Balls, deputy political editor of The Spectator. Let's start with you, Katie. It feels like partly because of the novelty and also because of its potential imminence. People are talking slightly less about Brexit and more about Tory leadership and where it all goes. How bad do you think it might be for the Tory party? I wouldn't say it's going particularly well for them right now. And there's lots of talk about a snap election. It feels that has died down slightly this week, partly because Tory MPs really thought about what might happen in that snap election. And I think only those with the safest seats still thought it was a good idea. And when you think about a snap election, there are lots of things that might have happened. But the one scenario it seemed really hard to envision was basically the Tories getting a massive majority. (laughs) And I think when it comes to where they go from here, a lot could still change. I think that there are still some Conservative MPs that are fairly optimistic. And I say that with the bar being pretty low for optimism, but they think they might not be annihilated at the next election. And that is because Theresa May will take some of the Brexit blame and they can put in a new leader in place. And I think at that point, you can actually have a whole new agenda and go against an opposition which, for all the problems the Tories have, isn't really surging ahead. Henry, you were at the Onward launch earlier. It was sort of quite striking that on the one hand, they were laying out this is what the Tory party needs to do to win over the youth. But actually, their prescription for that seemed to be quite similar to the manifesto that Theresa May laid out in 2017. And we all know what happened then. Yeah, I think there's two possible conclusions you can draw from that. One is that uh, they're wrong. One big factor that weirdly, despite the fact that we're getting into a leadership election, isn't really talked about, is the extent to which just a good leader, a charismatic leader, a popular leader can just paper over all sorts of cracks. David Cameron won a majority less than four years ago. The Tory party had demographic issues then. The Tory party had issues around its sort of fragile coalition, uh, different kinds of voters Uh, in the West Midlands and the North than it did in the South then. Now, those issues have been exacerbated by Theresa May being rubbish and by the UK deciding to leave the EU, sure. But ultimately, people looked at David Cameron and said, yeah, I fancy him as Prime Minister. And if they can find a leader who can uh, provoke that same reaction again, then I think a lot of these issues will be mitigated, if not solved. Katie, Henry's right, isn't he, that to some extent, 
a bad leader, even with good policies, is going to end up with a bad result. But actually, a good leader could have a bunch of pretty bad policies and not particularly inspiring manifesto. And if the public look at them and think, oh, they look sort of feasible, they seem like they've got the right intentions, whether or not, you know, they've crossed every I and dotted every T in the no the other way around whether or not they've crossed every t doesn't, <laughs> it matter. doesn't matter it doesn't matter you can dot you can dot your t's and nobody would mind because they think you look plausible and you're good on the solid stuff and in a way that's the problem with the Tory party if they think it's all because they didn't have enough specific offers to the under 25s they're slightly missing the overall point that if you've got a bad leader it doesn't matter what's in your manifesto yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to tone and image. I was at an Onward event, not the youth one, a different event a few weeks ago. This is one for the elderly. Actually, well, it had Johnny Mercer speaking at it, who is sometimes talked about as the youth candidate in a leadership election. But he was talking about the future of the Tory party. And at the end of the session, they were asking audience members what issues they thought the Tory party needed to focus in on to get younger voters. And they talked about the environment, they talked about mental health. And another member of the panel, Craig Woodhouse, formerly of the press gallery, then of number 10, now I think public affairs, he said that he found it quite frustrating because actually all the topics they mentioned were policy areas the Conservative Party had come up with things on, but no one knew about it because they hadn't managed to get that message out there. It had just been overshadowed by various things such as Theresa May's you know, personal love of fox hunting. And, <laughs> and that meant you hadn't got there. And I think that when you relate that to what the leadership contest is going to be about, there is a debate going on with some MPs saying we need not perhaps continuity, but we need a moderate politician to just bring the party together and the policies will then do the talking. But there are others who say, well, if you wanted a unifier, we have just tried that out. Theresa May was supposed to unify us look around uh, the house is on fire and <laughs> then and then they say well actually we need a big personality and that's one of the big arguments in favor of Boris Johnson at least by his supporters is that he is divisive but there is a chance that when he gets up and gives a speech he brings people with him and yes he doesn't have any sense of detail and things start to fall apart but if he were to make a promise along the lines of I know I have my own failures on this but I will surround myself with technocrats maybe that'd be a way to get both things. And is there a fundamental problem with the Tory party, particularly the Conservative Parliamentary Party, in that Brexit has divided it right down the middle and it is going to be impossible, I mean, quite apart from trying to whip them on anything ever again because they all feel like they've empowered by their constituents or by their email inboxes. But also, how do you get Jacob Rees-Mogg and Andrew Bridget and Marc Francois signed up to the same agenda as Matt Hancock and other people on that wing of the party? And I think the problem is probably very difficult to get back in its box. I mean, Marc Francois spent the entirety of David Cameron's government as a minister. He was not on the airwaves every day talking about what his father did at D-Day and why he'd never be bossed around by a German again. He was loyally serving as a minister in a few different departments. I don't think this problem can be solved by whoever succeeds Theresa May appointing Marc Francois minister, at which point he'll stop being Marc Francois 2.0. I think the problem is that the box has kind of been opened. Theresa May, as Katie says, was elected not just as the sort of sensible grown-up in the race, as, as it was couched then, but also as a kind of stopper to stop the Tory party having the war amongst itself that Brexit 
kind of means it has to have. A leadership contest is only going to make that worse, which is why you start to think there's going to have to be some kind of democratic event before 2022, and that's most likely to be a general election. And, and, you know, in in one sense, it's a vindication of Theresa May's case for calling an election in 2017, which is that you need to deliver something as complicated as Brexit. And even if the UK has left the EU by the time there's a new prime minister on some form of deal, Brexit will not be finished. It's a process, not an event. You need some kind of public legitimacy to be conferred on the Prime Minister's interpretation of it. Otherwise, Marc Francois is going to keep being Marc Francois. And what about what's happening sort of to the right of the Tory party? UKIP are still bubbling around a full 5%. Uh, the new Brexit party, uh, Nigel Farage's outfit run from a bed and breakfast somewhere in Kent, is on 7 8%. If you put them together in the polls, it's somewhere between 10 and 15% already. And that's without them really doing anything. European Parliament elections are probably increasing as well. So does current or future new leader of the Tory party do a David Cameron in panic about the rise of these hard right parties and think we've got to try and appease them by promising whatever it is that they're promising? Or do they say, well, that's the whole point. We need a party out on the right wing and we define themselves against that and we move towards the centre and that's where we win. Yeah, and I think that's why there are certain candidates who really are saying, look, if you look at Tory voters now, they're different than they were in 2015. There might be some Conservative wannabe prime ministers who want to think of it as being a more metropolitan party, but if you actually look, it's changed and it's more likely to be areas outside of cities and probably areas that voted heavily to leave. I think that's a debate because there are some potential leaders who still think they can go back to the older demographic. Uh, When you look as to what effect the other parties could have, I was speaking to one Conservative MP earlier today who has a UKIP threat in in their seat. but they're not actually as worried, partly because of what just happened in the Newport by-election. And they don't think that the movements are strong enough to really suggest you're getting that heavy protest vote yet. And they make the point that what really hurt the Tories in the 2017 snap election, and I suppose you can't really say it was just one thing, um, but <laughs> one of the things that hurt them was the fact that people stopped voting for small parties and Labour got so many votes. So it seemed that you were getting rid of the fact, you know, Lib Dems and Greens would eat into the Labour vote. They think the creation of TIG is ultimately quite good for them because they think even though you will have a Brexit party vote potentially, and we don't know for sure if they'd field candidates in a general election, but you know UKIP would, a similar thing will be happening with Labour because there are those, just as there are those who are unhappy with the Conservative Party's Brexit position for not being Brexit enough, there are those on the other side who are annoyed with Labour for not being against Brexit enough. One thing that's going to be a really interesting dynamic in this leadership contest is there are local elections on May the 2nd. A leadership election is not going to have been completed by then, even if it started. So we will actually have some electoral data to feed into this argument about where the growth areas for the Tory party are. Um, Yesterday I went to a briefing from uh, Robert Hayward, who's a Conservative peer but also a veteran sophologist, about the local elections coming up, uh, which are predominantly in rural, non-metropolitan areas of England proper traditional Tory land. You can see a world in which the Tories lose a lot of council seats. Labour don't gain that many because, as Katie says, TIG take, or not TIG, but various other forces of Remain, to put it crudely, or other left groups. And you can see a world in which, well, you know, the Tories sort of lose a bit of support, but actually the case for 
kind of muddling along with a similar electoral coalition rather than saying we need to pivot hard to the seats that we nearly but didn't quite win in 2017, the hard leave seats. You can see the case there for a candidate like Jeremy Hunt who says, well, I'm sort of going to carry on this sort of middle path between those two arguments for the future of the Tory party. We've got a a comment piece from a Conservative councillor running on Redbox on Wednesday in which they talk anonymously, because they can be more honest with the doing about that, about how they are getting absolutely slaughtered on the doorstep. They say Theresa May's blown up their campaign by an offer to work with Jeremy Corbyn. In the old days, you could go around and nobody was rude to you. You could count on one hand the number of times that someone would be rude to you. And now they said that 40 or 50 of them turned out for campaign day and only four or five would even go and knock on doors because the reaction is so bad. Maybe that's why, Katie, that your Tory MPs you're speaking to have suddenly gone off the idea of a general election, that that those who have gone out in the local election campaigns have seen what the the reaction's really like. At the next election, the Tories will do everything to say that this man is not fit for office, that he is a Marxist, that you cannot be trusted. And now there is a very simple reply, which is, well, why did you enter into these discussions? Why did you invite him into 10 Downing Street? And I think that's going to be something that's very difficult for the Tories. Um, Just finally then, the sort of the exam question of all this, are the Tories finished? No, I don't think either major party has ever finished in our stable, in a way, two-party system. But I do think if they're in election anytime soon, the current crop of Tory politicians will be finished and Jeremy Corbyn will become Prime Minister. Snap election doesn't look good. However, I think longer term, there's so much that's going to change in the next year in terms of leader direction and even just where all the different parties are, we could have that realignment we've been talking about for four years. <laughs> so, so there's everything to play for. And who do you think will be the next Tory leader? To be honest, I don't want to be boring, but it just really depends on the backdrop. Are they having a leadership contest when the Tories are going into a year-long extension? I think that helps a Brexit candidate because there's going to be a lot of anger amongst the members. If you somehow pass the deal... That really helps those candidates, I think, like Jeremy Hunt or Matt Hancock, who want to talk about the future. It's very hard to talk about the future if you're stuck (laughs) in the situation that you've been talking about for the past three years. Long extension, I think someone like Boris could do very well. Two candidates, uh, one of Remain, one of Leave, who I think are undervalued in Westminster. Uh, The Remain one is Matt Hancock, although more people are talking about him now. And I can see how he could be to Lever, even amongst the grassroots, Although, as Katie says, it depends what the Brexit situation at that point is, purely by being more dynamic, more creative, having a bit of energy and vim and vigour. And the Leave candidate, who I am surprised people don't seem to be taking quite seriously enough as a contender, is Andrea Leadsom, who, never forget, made it through the MP's ballot last time. And I think very plausibly, given what we now know about her campaigning qualities, would have beaten Theresa May if it had got to the party membership. And we shouldn't forget as well, we're sitting on a lovely sofa, just like Theresa May, just outside the press gallery where we go in to watch PMQs. And actually, of all the moments in the House of Commons over the last 12 months, Andrea Leadsom's been involved in almost all of the good ones, including the absolute standout one when she asked John Burko, why didn't you apologise when you called me a stupid woman? Which is still one of my favourite things ever. Uh, But there we go. My huge thanks to Henry Zeffman and Katie Balls. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Let us know what you think, though. Are the Tories finished? What do they need to do to survive? Email me, redbox at thetimes.co.uk. Tweet us at Times Red Box, Or why not post a review on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Join me tomorrow when I'll be in Brussels, where Theresa May is asking other EU leaders for an extension to Article 50, where we should find out 
how much longer this saga is going on for. But for now, my thanks to all of the people I spoke to for today's episode. For me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.